So today and over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at this truth that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, and that changes everything. So welcome again to Wellspring Worship Center this morning. My name is James. It is really exciting to see so many folks here after you, some of you that were slacking off in the summer, but it's okay. We're, we're in the business of forgiveness here. So we really hope that you're going to stick around for the summer, uh, the barbecue as well. Uh, Steve is probably already out there cooking. So we hope you'll stick around for that. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at the book of Romans, but we're going to be taking a slightly different take on it. Someone asked me today, oh, what are you speaking from? Are you going through verse by verse? And I said, well, no, not really, but actually the entire sermon is on the first sentence. And by that logic, we'd still be preaching on Romans in 50 years' time. So (laughs) fortunately, this will be a four-week series. And we're going to be looking at this idea of Romans disarmed. Scripture is so often used as a weapon, and Romans, sadly, is no exception to that. There are certain verses in Romans that have been used to cut people out, to exclude people. And some of these are verses that we're all very familiar with, and some of them will be verses that don't quite make sense to us, and that's okay. We're going to spend some time on that. Some of them verses might be some of our favorite verses, and it's really hard for us to see some of our favorite verses up against some of the more challenging ones. But the idea is that we're going to look throughout the book and see all the ways that Jesus being Lord changes everything. I'm using uh, this book, Romans Disarmed, by Sylvia Kiesma and Brian Walsh quite a lot, so don't be surprised if I flick to that every now and then. As I said, today we're going to be looking at just those first few verses, and then we're going to be trying to get inside the mind of a couple of first century Christians, which of course isn't a particularly easy task. Because we need to remember that Paul is writing to a world that is vastly different to our own, with people vastly different to us. And whilst there are certainly similarities, and we're going to look at those and draw on those too, it's a very different world. Laura spoke last week on the Lord is my shepherd. And she said, actually, that's not always the most helpful thing because I don't really know what a shepherd does. And if you don't know what a shepherd does, then the Lord being your shepherd isn't necessarily a comfort. Understanding the context of what is going on helps illuminate scripture so much. And that's what I'm hoping to do today. The reality is that we are not Roman, as far as I'm aware, and none of us are living in the first century. If you are either of those things, please let me know, and we'll have you preach this series instead. I'm sure your insights will be invaluable. Because actually, Paul begins here with an exclamation mark. But because we don't speak the language, the punctuation is lost in translation. He begins with a thunderbolt. But unfortunately, we are so far removed from the strike that we neither hear the thunder nor see the lightning. Paul begins with a fist in the air. 
It's a fist against the empire. It's a fist against what it does and how it exploits people and what it does to those who are unable to defend themselves. And we, sadly, miss some of these things. We miss that Jesus being Lord means that Caesar is not. And that changes everything. Let's look at this first line very quickly. We're going to spend quite a lot of our time here. There are at least three different places where Paul is really blowing the status quo to pieces here. But it's not too obvious to us, right? We don't see it. I must have read these lines a hundred times by now, reading them over and over again, trying to study. And I look at this one line and I think, well, that's just Paul introducing himself. He's writing a letter. He's got to do that kind of thing. That's what you do when you write a letter. You say who you are and what you're going to do. There's nothing out of the ordinary about this line. And I was very wrong. There is so much going on in just this opening statement. See, the first thing that Paul says is Paul, a slave. Now, our Bibles translate it as servant, and that's a terrible translation, actually. It's definitely slave. The word is doulos, which means slave. You are someone who is owned. Now, we've heard this expression of being a slave of Christ. Paul uses it elsewhere, actually. But what's interesting is that if you are writing a letter to someone, this is a ridiculous way to start a letter. Paul has already failed, like, rhetoric 101 with this single action. He's two words in, paulos, doulos. He's already failed. Because the point of an introduction to a letter is to show people how important you are. You talk about your stature. You talk about the things that you've done. And let's be clear, Paul is a very accomplished person. Paul, nothing else. He's a citizen of Rome. And that affords him rights and it affords him privilege that a lot of people within the empire did not get. He's also as trained in the Hebrew scriptures as really anyone alive at this point. We hear him call himself a Pharisee. That's how much he knows the scriptures. And yet... He introduces himself, Paul, a slave. See how unimportant I am. But for some reason, that means we should listen more. Another thing to bear in mind, if you're saying that you're a slave, the inevitable question becomes, whose slave are you? And the answer nearly always would be, a Roman household. A Roman household whose allegiance would ultimately always be to Caesar. Caesar and the long line of Roman emperors before him. Instead, Paul talks about being a slave of Jesus. Not a Roman household, but to one of Jesus with his Jewish lineage from the line of David. He even says this slightly later on. And so this question, who do you serve? Who do you die for? Only Jesus. The first four words, Paulus, Doulos, Jesus, Christos, he's already set a powder keg up in Rome. 
There's the next line, which is even more exciting for me, actually, and it's such a loaded term, is gospel. Now, again, I think we're very familiar with that term, maybe too familiar that we forget its power and we forget what Paul is trying to do when he's talking about the gospel. So the gospel in its original language, and this is where if you're a bit of a Greek word nerd, you get all excited. I got very excited about this this week. It translates is evangelion. I had to speak to my Greek-speaking friend for a long while yesterday to try and get that pronunciation correct, so bear with me if I get it wrong. Evangelion literally translates here as the gospel or the good news. But when you get into the roots of this word is where it gets really exciting. See, the ev or the eu there means good. And if you think of the word euphoria, Euphoria means like to bear, and you means good. So euphoria means you're bearing well, you're doing good. Euphoria, you see. And angelos, or angelion as we see there, is where we get angelos, or angel, messenger. Angels are God's messengers, right? So you put those two words together and you get evangelion, literally the good news, the good message, which is exciting. And we, people probably knew that, maybe some people knew that. The exciting part for me is that this isn't a Christian term. We stole it. (laughs) It was never a Christian term. It was a Roman one. And in ancient Rome, it referred to the good news, the Evangelion, the gospel of the royal palace, the news of Caesar. Now, sometimes... It will be talking about the birth of a king or birth of an emperor. More often than anything, it was used to share military victories. The good news of Rome, the gospel of Rome, was seldom good news for the enemies that they conquered. The good news of Rome was seldom good news for people whose lands were stolen from them. The good news of Rome was seldom good news for those captured as slaves. And so Paul takes this word, he takes that word gospel, that word that had been used to kind of strike fear and also to raise a kind of jingoistic response in Rome. And he says, that's ours now. And our good news, our gospel is so different to yours. I don't know why that makes me angry. It's exciting. The reality is that all empires have their gospel. They all have what they think is good news. But we need to ask the question, good news for who? The good news, the gospel of England for centuries And we still hear about this, how we had a third of the map of the world was red because it belonged to us. And what good news that was. Unfortunately, that gospel of the British Empire is inseparable from the horrors of the slave trade. If we talk about even the gospel of Canada 
true and strong and free. Canada, our home and native land, which has been so good to so many people. But that good news for so many is inextricably linked with cruelty and cultural genocide of our First Nations people. When you hear good news, when you hear gospel, ask yourself the question, whose good news, whose gospel? Because so often that good news, that evangelion, comes at the expense of those left behind or pushed aside, the silenced and the voiceless. And those are the people that Paul lifts up. Those are the people that Jesus restores. He elevates. He puts to the front. He says, these people come first. They might come last in your world, but they don't come last in mine. But sometimes we have to admit that maybe we haven't come quite as far from the Roman Empire as we would like. Rome has its own gospel. But Paul wants us to know that God's gospel, God's evangelion, is different. See, Rome's gospel proclaims that Caesar is Lord. This was like the expression of the day. Everyone knew that Caesar was Lord. It was like a greeting, a kind of make America great again, except everyone agreed with that. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. It's a good greeting. Really catchy. Rolls off the tongue. But then in verse 4, Paul says, Jesus is Lord. And that changes everything because it is a direct shot at the power structures of the day. I'm going to lean on Romans disarmed for this quote very quickly. In the face of an imperial gospel that proclaims that all salvation lies in Rome and that identifies the emperor as both Lord and Savior while bringing crosses, crippling taxes, agricultural exploitation, economic destruction, war and violence wherever it goes, Paul brings a gospel of deep, transformative creation-restoring salvation that turns the empire on its head. You have to realize that proclaiming Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, as Lord, flies in the face of the imperial ideology. This is seditious language, because if Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. And so Paul begins his letter I am a slave. The empire's gospel is worthless. Caesar isn't Lord. We're just a few verses in, and Paul is burning bridges quickly. In fact, it's not really a surprise that his life does eventually end by execution in Rome. These are good things to dwell on. And we're going to be drawing on them more over the next few weeks. But I thought it might be really good to look, what, look at what this message, what this new Evangelion means to someone in first century Rome. Someone who is truly transformed by even these first few verses. 
In Romans Disarmed, Kismet and Walsh use these kind of two protagonists to illuminate the context of Rome further still. And what's so helpful here is that we sometimes forget that these letters were written to people, to real people, who were going through things just like we were going through, and it's addressing issues that they were going through. And what's wonderful is that we get to learn from that. Now, the people that I talk about here, we don't know this is actually how their lives were, but it is drawn from a lot of historical sources. So there's nothing that's desperately controversial about what I'm saying. But what we want to do is look at two different people, people whose lives have been changed by this message that Jesus is Lord and that Caesar is not, and the way that this changes everything. There we go. Sonder Iris's story. Iris is a slave woman under a powerful and unkind master in Rome. And the majority of her time is spent looking after his children. And those parts of the days aren't so bad. She takes them to school, she takes them to the market, she'll take them to the Roman Forum. And the forum is a place where she gets to see all these magnificent images and icons of Roman victory. These stories etched onto lamps and statues and facades all over the place. And they tell of Rome's proud history. They speak of Aeneas, one of the great stories. Aeneas, whose humble sacrifice of a sow on the altar led to the peace and prosperity that Rome now experienced. And each carving and each sculpture and each painting is a reminder of how lucky she is to be a slave in Rome. The children would ask to hear those stories again and again of the Roman pantheon, in stories of heroes, of Hercules. And the stories that were so compelling for so long that she almost believed it until she remembered her place in the world. Until she remembered that Caesar was Lord and she was a slave. That that gospel of Rome, that Evangelion, never felt like good news for her. The world where Caesar was Lord was a world where her own children, born of exploitation and brutality and the rape of the masters and her master's friends, were taken from her because slaves didn't have children. They had property, and they only produced more property. And it was his property, and he could do what he wanted with that property, and that meant them being sold as young as two years old. And it was really comfortable to pretend she didn't know what kind of things could happen to her. Those cruel lusts and desires of the masters of Rome that she had experienced firsthand herself. But these stories on walls and vases, carved in stone and marble and decorated with gold, they weren't her stories. She didn't know her stories. Because they had been stolen from her. 
She is another victim of the empire's cultural genocide. But then her friend, another slave in the household, tells her a story. And for the first time, it's a story that she gets to be a part of. A story that she gets to call her own. It's a story of a man, Jesus of Nazareth. He, he healed the sick and he made the blind see and he raised the dead back to life. And he died the death of a slave. The death of a slave, a slave like her, a slave like her friends. That death on that cross, that shameful death of a slave. But for him, death wasn't the end. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was raised and he ascended to heaven. And she's so curious about this story that includes all those folks that have been on the margins that never feature in Rome's stories, but seem to be so important in the stories of Jesus. And then she's suddenly struck with this hard truth that Jesus, this man, is a Judean. And, and Judeans hate everyone. <laughs> Judeans don't sit with anyone. They don't eat with anyone. They keep to themselves. So there's no way she gets to be a part of that story because by his very nature, he will be exclusive. And her friend says, there is more to this story. You have to come and see. And so Iris sneaks out at night for the first time, hoping her master won't see, doesn't notice her absence. And she arrives at that first church meeting completely uncertain what to expect, not knowing if she'll be talked to, let alone respected in any way. She didn't know what it felt like to be respected anyway. And what she's greeted with doesn't make sense. This is something that she has never seen before because in this same room, in this same gathering, there are people from everywhere, all walks of life. There are slaves like her, but there are free people too. And there are young people and there are old people and there are some really respected, well-to-do people in society. And there are those so poor and so weak and so fragile, they are completely unable to care for themselves. They live in the tombs beneath the slums of the city where the most poor resided. But then the meal begins, and she knows what happens at mealtime. She stands to the side, and she hopes that she goes unnoticed, because so often at mealtimes, the master would get drunk, and he would do what he wanted to his slaves. But instead, she's invited to recline, something she'd never been invited to do before. She'd been invited to share their space, to share their food. And she doesn't know whether this is the best food she's ever eaten or if it's just the first time she's felt a part of something. But things get more bizarre. She doesn't think they can get any more strange, but they do. Because the person leading the meeting isn't Aquila, it's his wife Priscilla. And women didn't lead. Women shouldn't be given this kind of opportunity. But Priscilla did such a wonderful job. And then Paul's letter even mentions Priscilla. So clearly there is something incredible about this woman. Clearly she has been chosen by God to lead this church in this way. There's so much more to the letter. Paul even calls himself a slave, a slave like like her. And the letter made it really clear 
they needed to be looking after those most vulnerable. And afterwards, the church gathered and they talked about what they could be doing for the city. They talked about the ways they could assist newcomers to the community, to the city itself, those people who would be so easily targets for exploitation. In a city that talks so constantly about its justice and victory and piety that at the same time wrenched babies from their mothers. Here was a group that spoke of the ways it could deliver justice, real justice to those that needed it most. And they talked about the Lord Jesus, his life that was marked by bringing good news to the poor, by restoring sight to the blind, by setting the captives free. They were talking about her. For the first time, she mattered. For the first time, she got to be part of the story. The Evangelion of this community was finally good news for her. Iris, a woman without respect or a story, found both in this new community. Because Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And that changes everything. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the different characters in this story. The story where powerful fall and dead rise. A story that has enough, that has dignity for all. We're going to be looking at how this letter to the Romans changes things. It changed things for that community 2,000 years ago and how it should be changing us now. We're going to be looking at radical welcome. We're going to be looking at radical compromise. We're going to be looking at radical inclusion and pretty much anything else radical that I can get my hands on. We're going to be looking at just what a difference it makes to see Jesus as Lord and not anything else. So let's ask ourselves over the next week, How this gospel, how this good news of God the Father through Jesus Christ, raised through the Holy Spirit, changes everything. What pieces are we missing because we've read them so many times? What people are we missing? Are we not including because we've been there so many times? What ways do our lives proclaim the gospel And where are they following and channeling and honoring and maybe even worshipping a different gospel? How do we proclaim that exclamation point? How do we shatter and echo that thunderbolt? And how do we raise our fists saying that Jesus is Lord and that means that Caesar is not and that changes everything. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
for the ways that you speak to us. We thank you for the ways that you spoke to that community 2,000 years ago. And we thank you for the ways that you're speaking to us now. We pray that we can be a community with supple hearts, eager to follow everything you are. That we can proclaim that Jesus is Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.